Mike Check 717. This is Eric T. Jones, a.k.a. Brother Jones, and I just need five minutes of your time. But really, I want to take my time with this episode because it's personal. Today, I'm going to discuss racial trauma within the context of stress and how it ultimately impacts our health, both physically and mentally. Psychologists Lillian Comas Diaz, Helen A. Neville, and Gordon Nagayama Hall state, Racial trauma refers to the events of danger related to real or perceived experience of racial discrimination. Furthermore, racial trauma is cumulative. It builds up over time, so if you've ever gone to therapy only to find out your issues in adulthood originated in your childhood, well, racial trauma has a similar effect. It should be noted that racial trauma is also historical because the implications of slavery are present in structural racism. Therefore, blacks inherit racial trauma from generation to generation. For those who dismiss this notion, consider this. Researchers have discovered parents that experience racial trauma can undergo epigenetic alterations and pass it on to their offspring. With respect to stress, racial trauma increases cortisol levels. There are two main types of stress. Number one, acute stress, and number two, chronic stress. The former is when the body detects a threat and activates the fight-or-flight response. Once the threat is removed, the body returns to its normal functioning. The latter is when the body is constantly detecting a threat, leaving it in a constant state of fight-or-flight, which is extremely unhealthy. According to the National Institute of Health, chronic stress harms the immune, digestive, cardiovascular, sleep, and reproductive systems ultimately leading to premature disease and death. To get more specific, the health implications of stress are illustrated via the following terms. Number one, allostatic load, and number two, the weathering hypothesis. Neuroendocrinologist Bruce McEwen and physiological psychologist Elliot Steller introduced allostatic load. They defined it as the cost of chronic exposure to fluctuating or heightened neuro or neuroendocrine response resulting from a repeated or chronic environmental challenge that an individual reacts to as being particularly stressful. Basically, the environment influences biological outcomes. Moreover, public health researcher Arlene Geronimus introduced the weathering hypothesis. She defines it as the early deterioration of health due to cumulative socioeconomic disadvantage. In 2006, she led a study with several researchers that examined allostatic scores for adults age 18 through 64 and found that blacks were more than likely to have higher allostatic scores than whites. Most importantly, the study also found that poverty didn't explain this disparity among blacks and whites, leading them to conclude that we won't be able to eliminate racial health inequality without understanding how race exacts a physical price across multiple biological systems from blacks who engage in and cope with the stressful life conditions presented to them. In other words, racism is killing us. Sadly, the literature is limited on racism's impact on health. A recent study that conducted a systematic review concerning the literature on allostatic load and health outcomes noted that most of it fails to evaluate the underlying individual causes of these outcomes. But psychologist Robert T. Carter's race-based traumatic stress concept is looking to help fill this gap. He recently co-authored a book with psychologist Alex L. Petersey titled Measuring the Effects of Racism, Guidelines for the Assessment and Treatment of Race-Based Traumatic Stress Injury that mainly focuses on the psychological effects of racism. 
Given studies on psychological trauma are limited when it comes to racism, their goal is to provide mental health professionals with evidence-based criteria that helps them understand racism as psychological trauma. Now, the cornerstone for diagnosing psychological trauma is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. This presents a challenge for mental health professionals because the criteria for PTSD doesn't really account for experiences with racism, which makes diagnosing racism as psychological trauma incredibly difficult. Even if someone tried to classify racial trauma as PTSD, Carter and Peter C. list three reasons why PTSD isn't racial trauma. Number one, stressful racism experiences are broader than a threat to life and do not only reflect serious injury. Number two, emotional and psychological responses to racism are not easily captured in a symptom checklist. Number three, there is little variation for symptoms to cluster or be based on one subjective perception. Building off their third point, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM, the handbook mental health professionals use for diagnosis, fails to consider subjective experience. Carter and Petersey believes that subjective experience is valuable, and while some people would decry the lack of objectivity in measuring this variable, at the end of the day, who cares? If regressives think black people are just making up their experiences with racism, they're in denial or just delusional. I have an issue with people that argue we're playing the race card. If I can add a side note real quick, for those who have a problem with the race card, all they need to do is one thing. Take it out the deck and reissue an equal and equitable hand. But history tells me they won't do that. Moving along. I went through all this academic jargon to make this one point. Racism is a public health issue. Even though the American Medical Association, American Psychological Association, and American Counseling Association condemn racism within the past year, the question remains, what are they going to do about it? They can declare Black Lives Matter until the rapture comes, but if they don't understand how doctors, psychologists, and counselors perpetuate racism, or don't have the tools to remedy their racist ways, the words mean nothing. Racial trauma is the reason why the proclamation Black Lives Matter gained traction. It evokes the countless experiences with racism we the black people yearn to be healed from. It speaks to growing up in a country that once enslaved people that look like us. It speaks to growing up in a country that legalized discrimination against people that look like us. It speaks to growing up in a country that was forced to grant civil rights in theory only to renege in practice because the country wasn't designed to humanize people that look like us. I know I'm way over time, but can I get another minute because I'm about to speak from personal experience. My grandmother, Juanita Prince, got rest her soul, picked cotton growing up in Tennessee. I'm two generations removed from picking cotton. My mother was born in 1954, the year Emmett Till was murdered. My father was born in 1956, two months before the Montgomery bus boycott ended. They were raised in the North, but the Great Migration didn't exempt them from racial trauma because they were victims of the North's version of Jim Crow, residential segregation. They lived through Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. They lived through race rebellions. They were rocked in the cradle of the Civil Rights Movement. I say all of that to say I'm one generation removed from Jim Crow. I grew up in a hood or what the young boys call the mud. I went to school with folks that are now either drowning in poverty, incarcerated like caged animals, or six feet deep. So when people talk about the school-to-prison pipeline or what I call the school-to-death pipeline, I lived it. It's not fun living in a food desert. 
It's not fun going to Famous Footwear with your mom and little brother to buy some Nikes to have a random white customer tell a sales associate to watch us. It's not fun entering school daily through bulletproof doors, going through metal detectors and being patted down like a criminal. It's not fun walking home from a basketball game in a hoodie and the police roll up on you because you fit the description. It's not fun having the opportunity to finish high school in a better district where the racial and socioeconomic demographics are like night and day and feel like an outsider. It also didn't help I was pulled from AP classes, indicating to me that I wasn't smart enough. This is just a snippet of my life, and even though I'm overcoming this racial trauma, even though I'm a PhD student at an elite institution, these experiences, among others, remain with me. I, like many others, was set up for failure, not success. Now that I'm a part of the black middle class, when I look at my inner circle, all I see is black excellence. My friends and associates are thriving. People are moving up the corporate ladder, starting businesses, buying picturesque homes, acquiring rental properties, and having babies that will be set up for success. Puts a smile on my face. My people are winning against the odds. At the same time, whether blacks grow up and live in neighborhoods where gunshots or fireworks or neighborhoods surrounded by gates, picket fences, and manicured lawns, no one is exempt from racial trauma. Let me be clear. There are differences between these environments, but isn't it something to be black, have financial security, and still endure white spaces that question your legitimacy when Lord knows you had to be twice as smart and work twice as hard to get half as much? I can go on and on, but you get my point. These experiences are examples of black trauma, and it's weighing on us physically and mentally. I also believe it's killing us, and the science proves this. Living in a country where your work is your worth is stressful enough. Being black on top of that adds an extra layer of stress that's traumatizing. If you're still listening, you know my five minutes been up. But keep your head on a swivel until next time.